Welcome to the Bible Institute. Uh, let me see. There we go. How about? All right. I got to get used to this. I can't do it. All right. There we go. Welcome to the Bible Institute. Um, we got snowed out last week, and so uh, Tim Lasher was going to talk about why should we believe in miracles last week. Um, but he's not here this week, so instead of just pushing things back one week, um, instead you get to hear me talk about this question, is the Bible reliable? And then uh, we don't meet next week. There's an Awana Grand Prix, so if you like to watch little carved uh, wooden race cars run down the track, you can come anyway and watch that. I've carved many of those when my kids were little. Um, but uh, the other, let's see, so, and then two weeks from tonight, Tim will come back and talk about why should we believe in miracles. Um, as we've done in these evenings, if you have questions, you should text them. Um, Brian Hayes will get those texts, and then he will ask questions as we get near the end. The number to text them is on your notes right on the front page. And so if that's the way that we're going to be doing questions. Um, and it's always good to have those questions in by about quarter till seven or so, so he has a chance to look through them. Uh, so I won't say anything between quarter to seven and seven that you have questions on. I'll just make sure we do it that way. Um, so tonight we're studying or talking about this question, is the Bible reliable? Um, you know, when the Protestant Reformation happened, one of the key issues or one of the key sayings during the Protestant Reformation was that we take our, uh, what we believe, um, sola scriptura, from scripture only. Um, not from church tradition, not from the word of some church leader, but from scripture only. And so we as Christians, um, particularly um, Protestant Christians, have really developed this idea that scripture is God's word, the Bible's God's word, it's reliable, but it's even more than reliable. And People rightfully ask, well, why is that? Why do you believe that is true? And so these are the questions we're going to talk about today, is why do Christians believe a few things about the Bible? First of all, that it's a reliable record of historical text. Why do we believe that it reliably um, records what actually happened in history? Um, the second thing is, do we have today, when we open our Bibles, this the same thing that was originally written? Um, or have things changed radically over the years since it was written? And how do we know that what we have today is an accurate record of what was actually written? And then finally, the more um, overarching question maybe is, is this the word of God? Is there something special about this book? And why do we think there is? Um, I want to start by reading quite a few kind of lengthy quotations that people have said about the Bible in the world we live in today. And these are skeptics' claims about the Bible. Um, in the book, The Da Vinci Code, which is a fictional account, but Dan Brown, who wrote it, would say it's based on reality. Um, it really isn't, but that's another story. In that, that book, um, one of the leading characters says this about the Bible. Um, Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after Jesus' death. To rewrite history, right, it's not accurate history, he rewrote it. To rewrite the history books, Constantine knew he would need a bold stroke. So he commissioned and financed a new Bible. Here's something that had never been around before, the new Bible. The modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man, Jesus Christ, and use his influence to solidify their own power base. Now, this is something that a lot of people believe is true. They've read books like the Da Vinci Code. My, my colleagues at OU have sometimes read the Da Vinci Code. Um, but there's other people that have said things about the Bible. Bart Ehrman is actually a um, religious studies professor, and he's influenced many Christians to even rethink their faith, to walk away from faith. Um, and he's an expert. He says statements like this. Um, the more I studied the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, the more I realized just how radically the text had been altered over the years at the hands of scribes, who were not only conserv conserving scripture, but also changing it. The Bible, at the end of the day, is a very human book. So do we have a book that's only human and not divine? Do we have a book that's been changed and redacted and completely different from what was originally written? 
This is what many, many college students are hearing today, particularly if they go to um, the University of North Carolina. But many, many are believing this kind of idea. Richard Dawkins, um, who's an adamant atheist and an outspoken atheist, says this. Ever since the 19th century, scholarly theologians, right? It's not just any theologians. It's the true scholarly theologians have made an overwhelming case. You have to be stupid not to believe this, that the Gospels are not the reliable accounts of what happened in the history of the real world. All, all were written long after the death of Jesus. All were then copied and recopied by fallible scribes who in any case had their own religious agendas. Reputable biblical scholars, right, the good ones, the reputable biblical scholars do not in general regard the New Testament as a reliable record of what actually happened in history. This is from the book The God Delusion, which was a New York Times bestseller. This is what your friends and colleagues and children and their friends are reading and believing that nobody in their right mind would take this book seriously. Um, I could stop, but I want to drive the point home. Um, Elmer Hamegrossen, who's um, a scholar, writes in his book Christianity in America, few intellectual Christians can still hold to the idea that the Bible is an infallible book, that it contains no linguistic errors, no historical discrepancies, no antiquated scientific assumptions, not even bad ethical standards. Historical investigation and literary criticism have taken the magic out of the Bible and have made it a composite human book written by many hands in different ages. Right? You see the theme. This is a book full of errors written by men, nothing special. The existence of thousands of variations of texts make it impossible to hold the doctrine of a book verbally infallible. In other words, we got so many differences in our Bible, how could we say that what was originally written was from God and infallible? Some might claim for the original copies of the Bible an infallible character, but this view only begs the questions and makes such Christian apologetics more ridiculous in the eyes of the sincere man. Right? We're already ridiculous. This just makes us more ridiculous. And then finally, let me quote Sam Harris in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation. The Bible is either the word of God or it isn't. Either Christ was divine or he was not. If the Bible is an ordinary book and Christ is an ordinary man, the basics, doctrines of Christianity is false. That's all true. When considering the truth of a proposition, one is either engaged in an honest appraisal of the evidence and logical arguments or one isn't. So everything he said is true, but now let's apply it to the scripture. Religion is the one area of our lives where people imagine that some other standard of intellectual integrity applies. In other words, in all the other areas of our life, we're going to look at the evidence and come up to a reasonable conclusion, but not in religion. In religion, we just have these beliefs that aren't based on anything reliable or any evidence. Now, you could go all night reading these quotes. This is what most people think about the Bible. This is what's been fed over the last 50 to 100 years in particular about what kind of book the Bible is and is it reliable. So is our belief that sola scriptura, that this is the book that we take as our word from God, is that stupid? Are we the ones that are fooling ourselves? Or is there real belief, reasons to believe that what we say is God's word is um, reliable. And we're going to look at three questions tonight and try to answer these questions. The first is, is the Bible authentic? And by that we mean, is the copy we have today the same as what was originally written? Um, or is it like what some of those critics said, that there's just so many variations, you can't believe anything, it's been changed and redacted, we have no idea that what was originally written. All we have is some composite that um, scribes and scholars took and rewrote for their own political purposes. Is that what we have here, or is it really an accurate representation of what was originally written? The second question is, is the Bible accurate? Does it present an accurate account of what really happened? When it says that uh, Jesus was crucified, can we believe that? When it says that Jesus went before Pilate, can we believe that? And even the miracles, when it says that Jesus was resurrected, can we believe that? Is the Bible accurate? 
Is it really a true representation, a true historic account of things that took place? And then finally, is the Bible authoritative? And by that we mean, does it show evidence of having a divine origin? We believe not just that the Bible is authentic, that we have what was originally written. We believe not just that it is accurate, that it presents a valid and uh, correct view of history. But we also believe that it's more than that. That it's an inspired book from God, and it's God's words to humans. And this is what we're going to look at. We're going to answer these three questions tonight as we go on. Um, and to do that, we're going to look at an acrostic that spells maps. Um, so the three things we're going to look at, or the four things, are manuscript evidence. That will answer the first question. Um, archaeology, that will be part of the answer for the second question. Prophecy, that will be part of the answer for the third question. And finally, special qualities. What are some of the qualities of this book that makes us think that it is indeed um, inspired by God, more than just a book written by men? Um, if you're relatively new to this subject, let me just give you some Bible facts. Let me tell you a little bit about what this book is. The Old Testament was written um, between about 1450 and 400 B.C. It's a collection of what we call 39 books. Um, some of those books have the same author, some of them have many different authors, and all there are about 25 different authors. Um, the Old Testament mostly tells the story of God's interaction with the nation Israel, a people that the book says God chose as a special people and made a special covenant with them. As, as, some, as we've been talking about, if you go to church here at Wildwood, um, our pastor talked about what's called the Old Covenant, the covenant God made with the nation of Israel. Um, the, it was originally written in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic. It was originally written mostly on animal skins, um, although later books may have been written in, in papyrus. And so animal skins and papyrus don't have long lifetimes. We'll talk about that. They last for a while, then they fall apart. Um, the last part of the Bible is the New Testament. It's a collection of 27 different books. Many of them are letters that Paul wrote, Many of them are accounts of Jesus' life. But it's written from about 45 to 90 AD by about 10 different authors. We'll talk about that. And it chronicles the life of Jesus and the early church, the early history of the followers of Jesus as they spread the news about who Jesus was and why they believed he was more than just a man. It was all originally written in Greek. Um, and it was mostly written on papyrus, which is made, it's a kind of a paper made from a plant called the papyrus reed. Right? So for those of you who are new to this subject of the Bible, we'll be talking about these things. When was it actually written? Um, what happens when you write on animal skins and they degrade over time? What do you do about that? And so these are the kinds of questions that will come up. So let's start with the first question. Is the Bible authentic? How do we know that what we have today is what was first written. And the problem with that is we don't have the original manuscripts. Because they were written on material that disintegrates and falls apart, and because there are no photocopy machines, um, they had to be copied by hand. As a manuscript became old and started to be worn, a scribe would copy it very meticulously because they thought it was somehow from God. Very meticulously, they would recopy what was already there, and then they would destroy the old copy. And so what we have to look at when we try to understand if we have originally what was written is we have to look at this progression of copies sometimes made thousands of years later. Now when we look first at the Old Testament, which was written between 1500 and, uh, oops, sorry, I forgot to do one, let's see, anyway, we're here. So when we look at the Old Testament, which was written somewhere between 1500 B.C. and 430 B.C., um, we didn't have any manuscripts that were even close to that. The earliest manuscripts we had were from 900 AD, about 1,300 years after they were written. And you might argue, well, how could you accurately um, keep an accurate record of what was written over 1,300 years? I mean, you've all played the telephone game where you whisper something into someone's ear, and by the time it gets around the room, it's completely changed. So how can you expect there to be manuscripts that lasted this long and were still accurate? 
And for many years, people just took this as a matter of acceptance or faith, that we had an accurate record. By the way, the way the scribes copy manuscripts was extremely meticulous. They would write a line, and they would count letters, and they would make sure that the original copy had even the same number of letters as the, the next copy. But we had, you know, no manuscripts, but then something remarkable happened. In 1947, um, near the Dead Sea, outside of Jerusalem, about, I think, 40 or 50 miles, um, some uh, Bedouins found in caves clay pots full of old manuscripts. They were first discovered in 1947. More manuscripts were found between 1947 and 1956. And in all, there's about 40,000 manuscripts written on animal skins and papyrus and even some on copper plates. And these manuscripts all are from about 400 B.C. or 300 B.C. to 100 A.D. So I wrote, uh, yes, let's do this. Oh, you're not getting the picture I'm seeing. Oh, that's because I'm forgetting to move it. I have too many things going on up here. All right, so there's the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was one of the caves that they were first found in. I have two computers showing me two different things. And here we are. So what happened is when the Dead Sea Scrolls were recovered, we got to see almost um, a thousand years of history. How much had the Bible changed between 200 B.C. and 900 A.D., a thousand years later? And we got to compare the manuscripts we had from 900 A.D. all of a sudden, remarkably, with manuscripts that were written about a thousand years later. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain parts of every book in the Old Testament except for Esther. And the amazing thing, believe it or not, is over a course of a thousand years, you have almost no change whatsoever. And if you have almost no change over a thousand years, then you can extrapolate back a few hundred to when, like, the later books were written and say, well, we expect no change there. Let me give you an example. An example comes from Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, which talks about the coming Messiah, there are 660 letters. And in a thousand years, only 17 letters changed out of 667. Of those 17 letters, 14 were just spelling differences, like spelling honor with a U instead of an O. I do my research in Europe, and I have to learn we write our papers in European English when we write papers because they're for European journals. So I have to learn the difference between European and American spelling. And that's all that changed. 17 of the, 14 of the 17 letters were simply respelling something, and the other three were slight variations on the word light, which didn't affect the meaning at all. That's just typical of what we found when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that over a thousand years of, of scribes meticulously copying things, nothing had changed. Nothing of any substance had changed. And so what we see then is that we have a good record that this Old Testament we have now is the same as what was originally written. Christianity Today wrote this, it is clear that the medieval manuscript of Isaiah and its predecessors in other words, what we had from 900 A.D. were copied with exceptional care on the basis of the Qumran Isaiah scroll, the Revised Standard Version, on the basis of what we found from a thousand years later, made only 13 minor changes in the whole book of Isaiah over a thousand years. So can we be confident that the Old Testament we have is the same as it was originally written? I think we can. The next question then is, is the New Testament authentic? And we're going to ask the same question. How many copies of manuscripts do we have? How old are the copies? How do they relate to what we had um, to, to when they were originally written? And we should play this game with all old um, manuscripts. Can we believe things that were written that weren't in the Bible? So um, here's some examples of things that you may have studied in college or your um, Kids may study in college. Julius Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars. It was written about 50 B.C. The earliest manuscript we have is from 950 years later, and we have 10 copies of that manuscript. The Iliad, which you've all heard of, which Homer wrote in 900 B.C., the earliest copy we have is 500 years later, and in all, there are about 643 manuscripts. So we have quite a bit of manuscriptural evidence about what Homer actually wrote. I wrote Aristotle up there. For Aristotle, the earliest writings we have are 1,400 years after he actually wrote. 
um, because all the other ones had been, you know, copied or, and tore apart or, or destroyed or something. And yet we all believe that when you go study the Iliad in college, you're studying an accurate representation of what um, Homer actually wrote. So what about the New Testament? The New Testament was written between 590 A.D. The earliest copies we have are 150 A.D., in some cases less than 60 years after they were written, compared to 1400. And we have 24,600 manuscripts and more because we're finding them all the time. It's not even a comparison. If I'm going to believe that what Homer wrote in the Iliad is accurate, what I have today, then I have to believe that what the Bible was written is accurate today. Let me tell you some more about the manuscripts. There are 10,000 Latin copies, 4,300 Greek copies, 9,300 other copies. There's the 24,000. Many date to within 125 years um, or less of the originals. And there's one copy of the Gospel of John, this little piece. It's called P52 in the literature. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John that most people date to about 50 A.D., somewhere between 25 and 50 A.D. The Gospel of John was probably written somewhere between 70 and 90 A.D. So this is like 40 or 50 years after the original. It's possible this is a copy of the original or the second copy or third copy of the original. It's unprecedented in ancient manuscriptual evidence that you could have something this close to the original. And so what we see over and over is that it seems to be that we have accurate statements. So what about all those variations? When Bart Ehrman says there are thousands of variations. Well, when you have 24,000 manuscripts, you have such a wealth of information that you do find slight variations in spelling, in a letter here and there, in a copying error where they repeat the same word twice. I don't know how many times I've typed letters where I repeat the same word twice, and if I didn't have spell check, I would never find it, right? So copy people sometimes did that. And when Bart Ehrman says there are thousands of variations, or Richard Dawkins says there are thousands of variations, there are these little tiny things that make no difference. Now, there are a few exceptions because we have 24,000 manuscripts. The last part of the Gospel of Mark that we have today is not in most of the originals. It was probably added later. The story of the woman called in adultery in John is most likely added later. There are probably true stories that were passed on orally but they were added later. So we know that. We have so many manuscripts that you know where there are slight discrepancies. Now, this is important for us in church to know because the first time someone comes to you and says, do you know there are thousands of variations in the New Testament and that part of the Gospel of John isn't even supposed to be there? You say, yeah, but they're mostly spelling errors and we know why these insertions might have been made and we know when the insertions might have been made and how. Um, and so it's not a big deal. We know because we've got this wealth of evidence, we know what was originally written. So that's the question of is it um, authentic? Is it really what was originally written? The second question we want to ask is, is the Bible accurate? And we're going to look at what's called internal evidence and external evidence. The external evidence is the one that starts with an A. That's archaeology for your notes. The internal evidence is how much do you trust the writers? Does it look like what they're writing is credible? Is it consistent? Is one writer consistent with another? If my wife and I go to a concert and she says we saw band A and I say we saw band B, um, you might say, well, you guys went to different concerts. But maybe we didn't. Maybe band A was the cover band or the first band and band B came later, right? And so you have to ask, do they mesh? Are they consistent? Um, maybe she likes band A better than band B and I like the other or something, all right? Um, so here's what the Bible says internally about the internal evidence, about whether it can be trusted. It's all written by eyewitness testimony. The documents claim to be eyewitnesses. John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched. We actually touched these things, this person. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was uh, with the Father and has appeared to us, and we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. You see, he's making a point here. We're not telling you fables that are third and fourth and fifth hand. We're telling you things that we've seen, that we've touched, which we've heard. 
Um, John writes later, the man saw it has given testimony. He's speaking in the third person, but he's saying, me who saw it has given testimony, and the testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. Peter writes, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The best evidence in a court of law is eyewitness testimony. I can pick that guy out of the lineup because I was there and I know who it was that robbed the convenience store. And these guys claim that they were all eyewitnesses. There are few that weren't eyewitnesses. Luke was probably Paul's um, personal physician and traveled with Paul. And so he didn't see much of this. So he was the good physician. I like Luke. He's the scientist. He's the medical doctor. He's got the, the, the higher degree, right? He says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, right? I'm going to write this carefully because I've been an eye, I, I wanted to investigate it, see what really happened. Um, oops. So now I need to go back. Can I go back? Yes. All right. So the Gospels even have eyewitness details. I love some of these things. They, they sound like, oh, we're in the wrong place. All right. They sound like they're written by eyewitnesses. John writes that he and Peter um, went to the tomb, and he writes the other disciple, he's speaking in third person, outran Peter and reached the tomb first, right? Wouldn't you be proud that you beat Peter to the tomb and write it? Who would put in that detail? Um, there are lots of passages about the transfiguration. This is when Jesus went up on a mountain and he appeared um, with all his glory. He was bright and um, the disciples saw him. And Peter um, is, says we should build you know, some kind of memorial here because we've seen Jesus in all his glory. But historically, Peter did not write a gospel. But scholars think that Mark was kind of Peter's scribe. So Peter described the events that really happened in Jesus' life to Mark, and Mark wrote them down. It's ironic that Mark is the only gospel that ascribes Peter's motives to, to that transfiguration. It says Peter didn't know what to say because he was afraid. How does Mark know that? Unless he got it from, made it up, or got it from Peter himself. Why is it that Mark, who is supposedly Peter's scribe, is the only gospel that talks about Peter's internal thoughts and motives? It's the kind of thing you'd get from an eyewitness. Luke, or Acts is very interesting, because Acts is the story, the last half of Acts is the story of Paul, and him, Paul taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And parts of Acts use the pronoun we, and parts of Acts use the pronoun they. And what you see is that Luke, who's writing Acts, floats in and out of the story. Sometimes he's with, Luke, with Paul, and he writes we, and sometimes Paul's not with him, and he writes they. Why would you do that if you're making up a story? But if you're a true eyewitness who knows when you were there and when you weren't, you would naturally write we or there. There are references to historical people and places throughout Scripture. There are geographical and physical details. The Pool of Bethesda is said to have five porches, but the Pool of Bethesda was um, buried when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. No one knew it had five porches if it was written much later. But they've since excavated it. It's got five porches. It sounds as if someone was there. The women were first to discover the empty tomb. In that culture, women had no place. They couldn't even testify in court. So if you're making up a story, the last thing you would do is make women the ones who find the tomb first. But if that really happened, you would write it that way. Now, people say, but you still can't trust these because the Gospels were written really late. Most scholars believe the Gospel of Mark, which is the first Gospel, in fact, all the synoptic Gospels, which is the word we use for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written between 40 and 60 AD, and John written a little later. Um, and there's lots of quotes of people in the early 1st and 2nd century who recognize this. Um, Bishop Pipus, who was in the 1st and 2nd century, described Mark as Peter's interpreter and said that he wrote everything accurately that Peter remembered. Um, Justin Martyr, who was an uh, early Christian in the 2nd century, um, writes that um, 
that, that these are the memoirs of the apostles, and they were written as reliable historical records. So within a hundred years or so after the death of Christ, you already have this tradition that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Um, Irenaeus wrote, we've learned the plan of salvation from no one else other than from those from whom the gospel came down to us. For the apostles did at one time proclaim the gospel in public, and a later period by the will of God they handed the gospel down to us in scriptures. These apostles who did also write the gospel. So again, by about 150 years after Jesus died, you've got this strong tradition already that these gospels were handed down and were written by the people who actually saw them. Now, if you go to Wikipedia and ask when were the Gospels written, you're going to get a much later date. You're going to get somewhere between 70 and 110 A.D., sometimes even later, not 40 to 60 A.D. Why is that? Because in the Gospels, Jesus predicts that the temple is going to be destroyed. He says not one stone will be left upon another. And that happened in 70 A.D., and if you don't believe that Jesus could have predicted the future, then what you say is that must have been written after the temple was already destroyed because Jesus couldn't predict it. So if your presupposition, if your bias is Jesus couldn't predict the future, then you have to say they were written after 70 AD. But all the other evidence except for that points to dates much earlier. Right? So who's telling the truth? The bias, you know, scholar who says, well, Jesus couldn't have predicted the future, and since the temple wasn't destroyed to 70, until 70 AD, but it says it will be destroyed, it must have been written out after 70 AD, or all the other evidence that points to a much earlier date. Right? So anyway, we've got lots of confirmation that the Bible was written early. That's the internal confirmation. But we also have external confirmation, archaeology. There's story after story of critics of the Bible who said, well, the Bible speaks about this, and we don't, have never found that in the historical archaeological records, so the Bible must not be true. In the um, early 20th century, critics said there's never been any discovery of a civilization called the Hittites, but the Hittites are spoken about a lot in the Old Testament. Now we know of at least two or three Hittite, huge Hittite civilizations. Whenever the Bible speaks about something and the critics say, well, we don't have archaeological evidence for that, we often will find that archaeological evidence and show that the Bible is true. One of those things is the, is the Bible speaks about David being the first king of Israel. Up until the 1990s, there was no evidence of David. There's been two things found that actually mention the house of David. Here's pictures of them. So now... Historians no longer say David didn't exist. They will now agree with that. They say, oh, we don't believe David's kingdom was as big as the Bible described. Right? You know, keep moving the goalpost. First, David doesn't exist, but now we know he does, so maybe his kingdom wasn't as large. There's so many of these. For a long time, people said that there was no record of Pilate being in existence because, you know, but Jesus supposedly stood before Pilate until on the Sea of um, the Mediterranean Sea, they found this thing now called the Pilate Stone in 1961. It says to the divine Augustan Tiberian Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Um, scholars said there's no such thing as the Pool of Siloam until they found the Pool of Siloam. Oh, I sh sorry, I uh, need to do this. Okay, So there's the Pilate Stone. There's the Pool of Siloam. People said that Jesus was supposedly crucified and that he was buried in a private tomb. For a long time, scholars said, that doesn't happen. Every single person crucified is thrown into a public ditch. You never get buried in a private tomb. Until in Jerusalem in 1968, they found the ankle bone of someone who had been crucified with the nail still in the bone in a private tomb. So over and over again, when people say, well, that's not true, because the Bible says this, but we have no evidence for it. If you want to place a bet, place it on the Bible. There are still problems. There's no real great evidence that the exodus ever occurred. Archaeologists will debate that the exodus occurred because the evidence is scant. So what are you going to bet on? That it didn't occur or that it did? If you want to take the winning bet based on the past history, you bet on that Someday they'll find evidence for it. 
Archaeologists say things like this. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. William Albright writes, there can be no doubt that archaeologically has confirmed the substantial historicity of Old Testament tradition. And the New Testament is reliable too. Um, primary sources, there are sources outside of the New Testament that confirm its truth. They aren't believers, they didn't see Jesus rise from the dead, but they show that the ideas of Christianity have spread early in the empire. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote in 115 AD and described events surrounding um, Nero in AD 64. So he's writing about something that happened 50 years earlier. And he describes Christian beliefs and Pilate and the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, so in 112 AD, a Roman governor in Asia Minor wrote about Christian beliefs. So here we're less than you know, 80 years after Jesus died and already Christianity has spread out um, to Asia Minor. Josephus was a famous uh, Jewish historian, and he wrote shortly after Jesus' death, of just, you know, again, decades after, about Christian beliefs. He does, he's not a Christian, so he doesn't say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but he's already affirming that Christians are declaring in Jerusalem and other places that Jesus rose. And he talks about Jesus' brother James and John the Baptist. Gary Habermas writes, in all, there are 45 ancient extra-biblical sources, sources outside the Bible that validate that Jesus lived, that he was crucified, and that his disciples believe he rose. Here's the quote from Josephus, actually. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. Here's Tacitus' quote. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Right? So already they're saying that Christians have these beliefs that Jesus rose from the dead. And if those beliefs were already around in 70 AD, it means that the eyewitnesses are still around. And they are the ones proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul Johnson, who is a historian, says, I doubt there is any serious scholar alive now who would deny Jesus' historical existence. Indeed, he is much better authenticated than many secular figures of antiquity whose existence no one has ever presumed to question. And some of those people that I quoted at the beginning, most of them know, but some of them would question whether or not Jesus actually lived. So the final thing we're going to ask is this question. Is the Bible authoritative? Does it show evidence of being from God, of being more than just a book written um, by men and for men. And the thing we want to look at first is prophecy. So prophecy, there are places in the Bible where um, the Bible clearly speaks about something that's going to happen in the future. And I just want to point to two of the many prophecies in the Bible. The first is a prophecy about the city of Tyre. Oops, we just lost something. Oh, there we go. All right. So Tyre is a city that sits on the Mediterranean Sea. I think it's in modern-day Lebanon, somewhere up there. And in 600 B.C., the prophet Ezekiel records things about Tyre. He said it would be besieged and destroyed. He said many nations would come against it. He said its ruins would be thrown into the sea. He says that the bare site where it used to exist would become a place for fishermen to spread their nets and that the city would never be rebuilt. So here's the history of Tyre. Um, there's a Tyre on the mainland, which is over on the left, and then there's this island out in the sea. And in 586 or so BC, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the mainland city. So the residents of Tyre went out to the main island and lived there. And Nebuchadnezzar took the old city, and people didn't live there anymore. Um, some centuries later, Alexander the Great came to attack the city, and he realized that all the people were out in the, the island. They were no longer living on the mainland, and he didn't have a set of, of boats, but he knew that he had to destroy the city. So what did he do? 
he decided that he would build a causeway out to the island. And he began to take the rubble of the ancient city of Tyre on the mainland and throw it into the sea, just as um, Ezekiel had predicted. And he built this causeway out to the, the island that he could walk across and attack the people of Tyre. Since then, um, the, many other nations attacked Tyre, um, and um, the mainland city was never rebuilt. You can see that causeway that was narrow with um, Alexander the Great. Of course, debris and stuff builds up, and it's now this wide peninsula out to the island. And so everything that Ezekiel wrote, the details that the city would be cast into the sea, which Alexander the Great did to build this causeway, was so precise and, and was fulfilled so exactly that if you don't believe in prophecy, the critics will say, well, that also must have been written after the fact. Surely Ezekiel couldn't have predicted something that exact, that precise, Clearly, this must be written out after the fact. But again, like the, the story of Jesus' prediction, except for that prejudice, all the facts point to this being written in 600 B.C. There, the other, so that's one prophecy. There are others like it. The other prophecy that's so amazing is the prophecies about Jesus. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus, and you know, I wrote them down in your notes because I don't want you to, I know you won't have time to write them down. But these are things you know. I've written where the prophecy was in the Old Testament and where it's stated to be filled in the New Testament. That Jesus would be born of a virgin, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, born in Bethlehem. So some people will say, well, Jesus could have faked some of these things. It's hard to fake where you're from where you're born, and it's hard to fake what your lineage is. Um, that he would have a forerunner. John the Baptist was the forerunner. Um, let's see. Okay. That he would speak in parables. That he would be a prophet. That he would enter Jerusalem triumphantly, which he did on Palm Sunday. That he would be trade for 30 pieces of silver, right? I'm sure Judas wanted to make sure he fulfilled prophecy by counting out 30 pieces of silver rather than 35 and asking for that when he betrayed Jesus. That he would be abandoned by his disciples. That he would be bitten and spat upon. I'm sure the Roman guards were in on the, the bruise, right? So they would beat him and spit on him just to fulfill prophecy. That he would be mocked. That his hands and feet would be pierced. When that was written, there was actually not even such thing as crucifixion that would pierce your hands and feet. Um, okay, so let me see. Ah. Um, that he'd be crucified with transgressors, that they would cast lots for his garments, that his bones would not be broken. Again, these are not things you can orchestrate, that the Roman guard is not going to break his bones, that he'd be pierced in his side, that he'd be resurrected and exalted, that he would send to heaven, and that he'd be seated on the right hand of God. In just one book alone, one chapter, there's multiple predictions. This is the Isaiah 53 that we talked about before with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it says he will suffer without sinning, that he would suffer silently, that he would suffer as a substitute to bear the sins of other, that's others, that he would be scourged, be pierced, be killed, be placed in a rich man's tomb, and be lifted up and exalted after his death. Now, if you read the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament, there are actually, um, some Jewish people think there are actually two possible messiahs. In fact, when I went to UCLA, I was talking to um, a Jewish person who said that, yeah, the Messiah can come either one way or the other. He can come either as a reigning messiah or as a suffering messiah. But the other, and most people actually of Jesus' day were looking for a king, a reigning messiah. Because the, the prophecies do talk about a reigning Messiah. But we as Christians don't believe it's either or. We believe it's both and. The first time he came, he came as a suffering servant. And the second time he comes, he will come as a reigning king. Now, in the mindset of most Jewish people at the time, they thought this, this Jewish reigning king would come. And so when Jesus is resurrected, there's the story of him talking to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
And this is what it says. It says, after his resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. See, they didn't get it. They didn't get that the Messiah had to come and suffer. So he explained this and he pointed out probably many of these 300 prophecies that many he fulfilled um, because they were expecting him to come and reign. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner says, um, calculates the odds of Jesus fulfilling by chance just a handful of prophecies, I think about eight. And he calculates the probability of one person fulfilling all these prophecies as being one part in 10 to the 17th power. So that's like if I was to take the whole state of Texas and fill it two feet deep with silver dollars and take one of them and put an X on it and ask you to blindfold yourself and walk through the state of Texas and on the first try pick up that one silver dollar with an X on it, right? It's not going to happen, and neither is anyone going to fulfill these prophecies just by chance. But Jesus fulfilled them all, and at least the ones about the suffering servant. So, in fact, prophecy is an indication that this Bible seems to be special. The other thing about it is the uniqueness of the book. We've already said some of this. It's written by over 40 different authors, representing at least 20 occupations. Um, in 10 countries on three continents, you can read it during a 1,500-year span, working in three languages with 2,930 characters, 1,551 different settings, using different literary forms, prose, poetry, history, parables in 66 books, but yet it has one common theme. And I think, I, and I would claim there are no contradictions. There are certainly different ways of telling the story. I saw band A, my wife saw band B. But there's no actual contradictions. Try to get any two people to write any two things that have a common theme and don't contradict each other, right? It's really remarkable. It's a unity from diversity. It's what being in Christ is all about, this unity from diversity. And then Jesus made claims that the Bible itself was special, was from God. He said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's saying this book is special. Nothing is going to disappear till it's all accomplished. Over and over again, he spoke, as it, he spoke about the word of God being written. He was referring to the Old Testament. Um, he said, when he was tempted, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only because it was written. He says it over and over. And then, so Jesus claimed that this book was actually God's word. And then he showed that he was a reliable witness to God's word when he rose from the dead. Christianity rise and falls on whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Uh, Tim will talk about that in two weeks. And if he rose from the dead then you can believe the things he said about the special aspect of the Bible that is indeed the very words of God. So we've actually looked at three things. Is the Bible authentic? Is it what was originally written? And the manuscript evidence affirms that it is. We have in our hands a very accurate representation of what the authors originally wrote. The second question, is the Bible accurate? And both the internal evidence of eyewitness accounts and consistency and the external evidence of archaeology confirm that this is an accurate book. When it describes a historical event, you can be sure that that historical event occurred. And then finally, is the Bible authoritative? Does it show evidence that it comes from more than just humans? And things like prophecy and these special qualities, what Jesus said about it, and... Um, this unity from diversity indicate that it's special. But before we finish, I want to look at one other thing. And this was the question of how was the Bible accumulated? Why is it that we say these 66 books are from God and the others are not? Because you'll hear this from critics. There's a gospel called the Gospel of Thomas. There's a gospel called the Gospel of Judas. None of those are in what we call our Bible. We don't think they're from God. So how is it that we compiled this book and put things together and said, these are the ones from God? I want to talk just about the New Testament, since I don't have a whole lot of time. The books that we think are really from God we call the canon, and they're considered authoritative. And the early church even recognized that 
that people were writing scripture. Peter talks about Paul's writings of scripture. So in the book of 2 Peter, Peter already says, Paul is writing scripture. We can tell. We can tell it's authoritative. We can tell it's from God. Paul quotes, um, he says, he quotes scripture, and he says, these are scripture. And one of the things he quotes is Deuteronomy. And the other thing he quotes is in Luke. And he's, he's saying these two things are the same. What God told Moses in Deuteronomy is scripture. And what God told Luke that he's already written down is scripture as well. So already in the very middle of the first century, there was this affirmation that people were writing scripture. They hadn't written it for 400 years, since 430 B.C., but now they were writing scripture. And the, the, um, one of the tests for scriptures, well, two of the tests, are that they had to have a apostolic authority. They had to come from the apostles themselves. They couldn't come from somewhere else, and they had to be recognized as having eyewitness authority, either someone who saw it or someone who's writing for someone who saw it, like Mark. And so these ideas were developed very early. Now remember, up until 313, Christians were persecuted as illegal. And the goal of the early Christians was not to write down what Jesus did. It was to preach the gospel. And so as, we, as one of the historians we quoted said, for the first 30 or so years, people primarily preached the gospel. There were actually creeds that were developed. You can find these things called creeds in the New Testament that are short sayings. Um, like Jesus rose from the dead or something. And, and in context, you can tell that it's actually older than when the book was written. So the ideas of Christianity were developed very early in the first century. But as Christianity grew and began to have an influence, people started using Christianity for their own gain. And they started writing fake gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip. These are not from the first century. They were from the second century. And, and so the, the apostles and the others decided, well, we need to make sure that we only recognize those things that have apostolic authority, those things that were had eyewitness authority. And so they began to compile what they knew was scripture already, not because they voted on it, but because it was already recognized as scripture. And there was these false ideas, these false scriptures that were trying to infiltrate the church. So by about 150, most of this was already taken care of. This is when these new Gospels were being write, written in the early 2nd century. By 150, Justin Martyr referred to almost all of Paul's letters and the Synoptic Gospels already as Scripture. By 180 AD, all the books in the New Testament were quoted by Irenaeus as Scripture, with the possible exception of six books. So very early the Christians were compiling the things that they said, these meet the criteria for Scripture, and these don't. Unlike other religions that claim that God, you know, uniquely gave one writing to this person or one writing to this person they copied, the Bible's different. It was written by eyewitnesses who wrote letters to others about it or wrote the record of what Jesus did. And the, the early Christians recognized these as such, as authoritative. But then they gradually compiled them together. By 367, oh, here, let's see, I forgot to turn this one. All right, by 367 AD, um, the Bishop of Alexandria published a list of the New Testament books that's exactly as we have today. Now, that, that's a long time after Jesus died. That's 300 years after Jesus died or so. But remember, it's not like he's writing this for the first time. It's like he's taking the tradition that's been around for 300 years and he's just affirming it. So when um, the Da Vinci Code writes that the um, Council of Nicaea, they voted on the books of the Bible, and Constantine pulled these together for political purposes and rewrote the Bible, it's a myth. It's not true. What really happened was because there were heresies being developed in the Council of Nicaea, and I think it's 319 AD, I can't remember exactly, they reaffirmed that these books of the Bible that have been around for a few hundred years now are the books of the Bible, and that they teach what's true, and the others don't. So that's how we got what we consider the canon. It's not some arbitrary vote. It's not picking these. It's not saying, oh, we like what Matthew says, but we don't like what the Gospel of Judas says. It's actually a recognition that these 27 books were recognized early by the church as being authoritative, being come from eyewitness accounts, and, and were just affirmed over and over as being real ones from God. 
So ultimately, we come down to this question, which we started with. Is the Bible reliable? And I would disagree with Sam Harris that when it comes to religion, it's the one thing we don't look for evidence. It's because of the evidence that I believe the Bible's reliable. It's because of the manuscriptual evidence. It's because of the pro fulfilled prophecy. It's because of archaeology. It's because over and over again it's been shown to be reliable that I believe it's reliable. It's the evidence about the Old Testament that shows it's authentic, accurate, and authoritative. Um, and so when you read this book, you can be sure to take it as a reliable record of what, it really, what really happened and studied for what it's studied to believe what it says is true is true. So that even includes miracles, right? The historian says, well, miracles we can't affirm, but we can. If everything Matthew wrote that can be affirmed can be shown to be true, then when he writes things that we also believe are, you know, are miracles, well, and the resurrection can be affirmed, but, but those things are true as well. And we'll hear more about that um, next week when Tim talks about, you know, this question, why I believe in miracles. All right, so, Brian, do we have any questions? All right. Yeah, I appreciate you all sending these in. Uh, first question, are there apocryphal books that might be accurate and valid that were left out of the Bible? Yeah, certainly there are other historical records. Um, the, the Catholic Bible has a whole set of books written between 400 B.C. and, and 0 B.C. that they consider um, as part of Scripture. Um, if you look at the history of them, they were added much, much later. It, that was a council, basically, that voted those books in. But um, they're probably reliable history. The um, Hanukkah, the story of Hanukkah is, comes from... Um, I think the book of Maccabees, one of these apocryphal writings that probably tells real history, but is not, was never considered by the church to be um, in this special category of being um, the word of God. And again, I talked to you about how the New Testament was developed as the word of God or was affirmed as the word of God. The Old Testament had a, a little different but similar process. Okay. Can you explain the difference between B.C. and A.D.? Yes, that's a great question. I should have said that. So th there's a lot of different names for A, B.C. and A.D. now, but B.C. basically means before Christ. So it starts about two, 2,100 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And then A.D. means after death. It's actually Latin for ad dominius or something. I don't speak Latin. So, um, but basically anything, and B.C. counts backwards. So 100 B.C. is 100 years before Christ. And 1,000 B.C. is 1,000 years before Christ. And A.D. counts forward to make it even more confusing. So 100 A.D. is 100 years after Christ, and we're in 2020, 2,020 years after Christ. Um, yeah, more or less. There's subtleties According here. According to but, the calendar right. you look at, right? Yeah. Okay, other than Scripture that was canonized into the Bible that we have today, were there other documents and manuscripts found at Qumran? Yeah, Qumran, about half the manuscripts are, are scripture, but we don't know who wrote the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. There's probably a, a group of people called the Essenes who may have written it, but it talks about their form of government and lots of other things too. But about half of the Dead Sea Scrolls are basically from the Old Testament scripture, and that shows how much they revered them. If half of what they kept was scripture, then they really looked at that as valuable. But the other half is lots of other stuff. Okay. Uh, how can someone say that eyewitness evidence is the best in comparison to modern forensic evidence? Um, so, you know, modern forensic evidence um, has a place, but most of the convictions that are done, and still correct convictions, I mean, the cases where modern forensic evidence overthrows a prior conviction are the ones that get all the, the press. But mostly, if you are a lawyer and you have eyewitness testimony, that is the best testimony. Um, in fact, I was, I'm reading a book by um, J. Warner Wallace, who was actually a homicide detective, a cold case homicide detective. And he writes that in all the um, cold case homicides that he ever prosecuted and won, it was all circumstantial evidence. He never won a case based on forensic evidence. 
Never won a case based on eyewitness evidence. So this other kind of evidence is so valuable that, and and eyewitness testimony is is part of that, is so valuable that it's what we use in our judicial system. Um, If you have an eyewitness as an alibi, you're not going to be convicted unless the eyewitness can be shown to be lying. Eyewitness testimony is still the best testimony in a court of law, despite the fact that there are a few cases where the eyewitness was not correct, or the supposed eyewitness was not correct. Um, A lot of that, if you go back and look, is also due to prejudice and preconceived notions. But um, still, you talk to any lawyer who prosecutes people, if you have an eyewitness, you have the best evidence. And two eyewitnesses is even better. And there are multiple eyewitnesses to Jesus. If you have two eyewitnesses to a crime, you know, you can be sure that that crime is going to be prosecuted and the defendant's going to lose. It's still the best evidence in a court of law. Forensic evidence just backs it up. Okay, good. Hey, we're going to have time for a couple more questions after this question. So be thinking, and then I'll I'll bring the mic to you. So raise your hand after after we get this answer, and we'll have some, probably a couple more questions. So um, one would hope that the scholars who wrote, I'm glad you asked, um, that's a book that we've referred to. Um, as well as the scholars cited in the book, and all the skeptic scholars quoted early tonight are looking at all the evidence. Yet they have come to very different conclusions. Are those who wrote the book biased, or are the skeptical scholars biased, or both? The evidence presented tonight is quite compelling. So how did the skeptical scholars miss it, or are we missing something? That's a great question, and there is, is such thing as called confirmation bias. We love to hear things that affirm what we already believe, and we love to dismiss things that don't affirm what we already believe. Right? But here, it's very important that you have to understand that the skeptics start with the presupposition that miracles and prophecies do not occur. Right? If miracles and prophecies do not occur then you have to throw out much of the Bible as being unreliable. To me, that's a real bias. To say that because Jesus could not have predicted the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, those books must be written after 70 AD before you even look at the evidence, is to me the real bias. Those who look at the evidence unbiasedly, like J. Warner Wallace, this cold case detective, he was an atheist. And his job was looking at old evidence and determining the truth. And he looked at the evidence from the Bible, from the New Testament, and became a Christian. It, to me, is the bias that says miracles can't happen that taints the secular um, historian and scholar. Um, Now, again, I have to be careful of confirmation bias like everybody else. But if if I, before the fact, say... Jesus could not predict the future, he could not rise from the dead, then it's irrelevant what the evidence is. I'm going to come to the conclusion that Jesus can't predict the future and he didn't rise from the dead. And when I read story after story of people who went to the historical record with the goal of finding the truth without the presupposition that miracles never occur, um, even sometimes those with the presupposition, um, the evidence speaks for itself. So I... I'm, I could be wrong. I'm wrong in some things. My wife will tell you that. But I personally think the biased one is the one who starts investigating the evidence with the presupposition that miracles cannot occur. You cannot predict the future. There's no such thing as any of those things because I think the evidence speaks for itself. Um, Lee Strobel, J. Warner Wallace, Josh McDowell, the names roll off the tongue of people who investigated the evidence with a bias that it wasn't true and took the evidence at face value, well, not at face value, took the evidence for what it says and became Christians. Um, so, yeah, we all have bias, and I think it's a great question. It's important to think about that. But if your presupposition forces um, one thing rather than another, I, I question that. Okay. Anyone else out here? Raise your hand. Questions? I've exhausted everyone. Going once. (laughs) Hey, haven't you enjoyed uh, Mike and his teaching? It's been great. Let's give him a hand.
You, you want to pray? You want to pray? You want to close in prayer? You want to close oh, in prayer? Yeah, I'd love to close in prayer. Yeah. Hey, you guys are going to get out early tonight. <laughs> hey, Lord, thank you so much uh, that we can gather together and, and just look at these questions. Uh, as was said earlier in this series, that questions are our friends. Um, we wrestle with these even as believers, but how much more even the skeptic that doesn't know them. And yet you put us in the midst of, of those people that are questioning God's word, the truth of it. And Lord, use this time to, to prepare us uh, to, for answers, uh, biblical answers, even reasonable answers that we can uh, look to that can help that person um, draw close, closer to you. Lord, we, uh, we know that you ultimately are the one that draws the sinner to himself as you've drawn us. So open their eyes to see truth and see you as Savior. And bless all these people as they go forward and, and those relationships they have. Lord, we pray that you would give them favor to move people closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you all.